Lauren to come and she is going to read our passage of scripture today, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and uh, through verse 14. So let's stand together, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Lord, we are thankful for your truth. We're thankful, Lord, that you have given us your word, and in particular today, Um, this letter to the Ephesian saints and those who are living around that city. Lord, would you allow us um, to humble ourselves before your word, to seek to know it, to seek to to grasp what it is that you are desiring to communicate to us through this letter. Lord, allow me to be your your messenger. And Lord, I just ask that as, as you use me this morning, that the words that I say would reflect what you truly desire. And Lord, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that you would, you would give us insight and wisdom so that we can live for your glory and that we can praise you, Lord, because you are worthy of that praise. We ask this in precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, a little over three years ago, um, I had the honor, or I should say the privilege, of officiating both my mother's funeral and my father's funeral. And during that, those funerals, each of them about three months apart, I also had the privilege of giving the eulogy. And a eulogy is a time when you talk about the life of that individual, right? It's the time when you, you think over the things that they have done, their accomplishments, their significance to um, the, the world. And I, I, you know, I, I thought about all the things that, that were unique about my, my mom and dad, the fact that they both were born and raised in India, the fact that they both had a love for God, the, the fact that, that they were very, very missions-minded wherever they went and, and were involved in churches. And I remember growing up as a, as a young boy just on a Sunday bouncing all over to different ministries and, and just constantly seeing their hospitality and their care for others. And I just, just took time to, to praise their life and to, to acknowledge the, what, what God has accomplished through them. And certainly there were frail, sinful uh, human beings, just like all of us would be, but a eulogy is a time where we take opportunity to talk about those people uh, in a way that really honors them, right? And what we have here in Ephesians chapter 3, 
verses 13 through 14, actually is a eulogy. We usually think of eulogy in the context of funerals, but the word here in chapter 3, or chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and our Father, that word blessed actually is a word that is eulogy in the Greek. And to, to give a eulogy is actually to give praise to someone for something. And what we have here is one very long sentence. How many of you, anyone here an English teacher? English teachers do not like Paul. The Apostle Paul writes very long sentences. And this is one very long sentence in the Greek. And the English is broken up to help us comprehend it and understand it. And uh, quite honestly, uh, finding the structure in it is, is not the easiest thing, but it's important that we recognize that what we have here is this this eulogy that praises God for all that he has done in bringing salvation. And it acts like the prologue to John's gospel. John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. That, those 18 verses there set the tone of that gospel. And, and, and you're constantly going back to what is revealed in that prologue in John's gospel. The same is true here with this eulogy, with this praise that is given to God, that helps us understand what is yet to come in this wonderful, incredible letter that God breathed out through the Apostle Paul. And so this one sentence then um, is praising God for blessing us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now remember, the heavenly places, it's not just talking about heaven, because in this letter, it talks about the heavenly places being the places where there are, there are rulers and powers and principalities, and there's rulers and authorities. So it's talking about that, that realm where Christ sits in authority, supreme, spiritual realm, physical realm, heaven, and here on earth. And certainly, Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, is under the, 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 uh, the care, so to speak, the sovereignty of God as he is given freedom in this domain. Now that means that God is to be praised for blessing us in Christ with spiritual blessing. So in this context of the heavenly places, God has blessed each of his children with spiritual blessings. And this whole eulogies as a praise for those spiritual blessings that he has given out to those who are his. And so these verses then reveal to us these spiritual blessings. Look, notice at verse 6. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Then jump down to verse 12. To the praise of his glory. Again, verse 14. To the praise of his glory. Now, this, this is kind of counterintuitive for us. But what, what God is saying as he's breathing this out, what Paul is saying is that God wants to be praised for his work, for what he has done for us in Christ. He's doing all this for the praise of whose glory? Our glory? No, his glory. There's only one being that can ever do this in a right way, and that is God. Because he is pure, he is holy, he is just, he is right. His self, desire for self-glory 
is not a sinful desire. It is a right desire because he is God. Our desire for self-glory is always tainted with our sinfulness and our selfishness. So God here is saying, listen, this is what I have done for my children. This is what I've done for my people. And it's done to the praise of my glory. Why? Because God's glory is to be revealed, is to be made known among the people. God wants his glory to be, to be made known. And so as we come to this passage, the best way that, that I felt that we could, we could structure this, this passage was to look at it from this picture. As we look at the big picture uh, of our salvation here, what we see is a past blessing, we see a present blessing, and we see a future blessing. And let's just highlight these because we're going to just focus on one today. Uh, because they're really powerful and significant blessings. The first one is the past spiritual blessing of election. The second one would be the present spiritual blessing of redemption. And the third one would be the future spiritual blessing of inheritance. So there's something going on in the past that, that Paul is writing about. There's something going on in the present when people are coming to faith. And there's something yet in the future for those to whom this is written, and it is their inheritance. And so this is a, a, a eulogy of praise to God for past spiritual blessing, for present spiritual blessing, and for future spiritual blessing. And so we're going to approach it in those ways, and today we want to focus on this first, the past spiritual blessing of election. Now, a word of caution here. The topic of election has been and continues to be a topic that is both difficult and confusing to many. So I want to be, I want to be careful and I want to be sensitive to know that there are a variety of people that are gathered here today that are at different places in their understanding and their interaction with this topic of election. It's a topic that has caused much heat or controversy within the church and has resulted in internal polarizing which is never healthy, and that is not our goal today. Our goal is not to polarize. Our goal is to be drawn to the beauty and the, the, the majesty of, of God who would give us these spiritual blessings. So this morning, we want to deal with some of those struggles, but we must all agree with this truth. Because the Bible, uh, Bible's teaching on election is both difficult and confusing to many, we want to be sure that it is the Word of God that is our teacher. All right? This is not Rod's opinion. We want to draw conclusions from God's Word. Okay? And we'll do the best that we can. Now, the reality is that most people, wherever they are, are going to be saying the same thing. We believe the Bible teaches this. But we have to be honest to say it's not our system of thinking, but we want to draw our attention from God's Word this morning. So, why is this topic so difficult? Turn on the back of your handout, and I just wrote down uh, seven questions, seven areas of struggle that often come up with this topic, and I just want to highlight it here. At the end, we'll try and go through and give some answers, but here are some, some struggles that people commonly have with the subject of election. It just doesn't seem fair that God would choose some and not others. Have you heard that before? Okay. It seems rather cold and mechanical that God would choose. And it just seems like, you know, there's, there's a distance, and it just seems really impersonal. Um, didn't I freely choose to follow God in salvation? I've heard that one before, right? 
Isn't election simply man's speculation about how God saves? In other words, man had to come up with some kind of a, a way that God saves, and so he came up with this whole idea of election. Doesn't believing in election lead the door open to sinful living? And I've heard that. You know, I've actually heard that specifically when I did ministry in Russia. That was one of the big things that they brought up when it came up to this subject. Number six, doesn't election produce a boastful pride? Number seven, doesn't believing in election remove any need or responsibility for things like prayer, evangelism, and good works? Now, I, I'm sure that we can all relate to some or all of these struggles. But the first issue we need to consider this morning is this. There are, there are three basic views on the topic of election. And we're gonna, just going to do some, some background here, and we're going to then land in our text and allow our text to speak. But I, I at least want to bring up the issues here so that we, we have some perspective to, to think through as we come to our text. So three different views on election. Number one, a denial of election. There are those that say we don't believe in election. God does not elect. But is election taught in Scripture? And the answer is, we just read a passage, it talks about the fact that God chooses us, so the answer is yes. And of course, that whole idea of choosing is the same thing that, that is election. To say that election is not taught in Scripture is to deny our very text. So it's taught in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, specifically in the expression, even as he chose us in him. Election refers to God's choosing us. Um, it is there, and it's in other passages too. The word elect is used in Scripture to describe believers, true believers. And notice the following passages. Let me just read three. We'll begin at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Just, just listen, or if you want to turn there, that's fine. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Paul's saying, this is, this is what I'm doing. I'm enduring everything. Why? For the sake of the elect. He loves God's people so much that he is willing to endure anything for their benefit. That's how the word is used. Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. But it's the sake of of God's elect. Those are God's people. And then Romans 8.33, this is really important, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now, there's something unique, there's something precious, there's something protective that God does with his elect. That's how the word is used here. So we must be honest with scripture and affirm that election is taught and those who are true believers are identified in Scripture as the elect. So the real rub is not that, because clearly Scripture does talk about election. The real rub has to do with the following question. How are God's elect elected? If you can understand that. How are God's chosen chosen? And so the two primary schools of thought and I'm, I'm, I'm painting a, a broad stroke here and just saying there's two schools of thought because we're not going to go into the, all the intricacies of each of them, but there are two basic schools of thought that we're going to look at next. So the second idea of election or school of thought is that election is taught in Scripture, but it is an election 
based on foreknowledge. Now, this group teaches that God only elects those whom he sees through the corridor of time that will believe. So this group translates this word foreknowledge to mean that God is seeing through the corridor of time who would be saved, and therefore, based on what he sees, he then elects. Okay? Now, let's turn our Bibles to Romans 8.28, and you'll see how this word is found in the context of this passage. Obviously, a wonderful passage. Interestingly enough, we started with a eulogy. Now we're in Romans 8.28, which we usually go to when we're going through a time of difficulty at a funeral or something like that. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, an effectual call, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so what this group would say is that word foreknew is talking about, see, God somehow through the corridor of time was able to see the people who would believe, and then he then chooses them to be part of his family. Now, I personally disagree with that position. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. It's it's based on faulty understanding of the word foreknowledge. The word foreknowledge doesn't mean to know ahead of time. It means to plan ahead of time. In other words, to know before something actually is going to take place. It's not saying I'm looking down the corridor of time and I can see it and then I come back and are able to do it. No, it means before it actually happens, I have known this is going to take place. So God isn't looking down through the corridor of time wondering how people respond to his call for salvation. Now, just, I mean, just step back and think about who God would be in that context. God has set the world in motion, and it's like, I'm not exactly sure how this is all going to play out. We'll find out. Oh, oh, that person, no, they're believing. Oh, good. I guess I'll elect them. You see? I don't want to be, I want to be careful. I want to be obnoxious with being sarcastic, but you understand the difficulty of that. It really diminishes the character of God. Now, that also, that, that argument is forcing Scripture to say what it isn't saying. And now let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, because if it is true that foreknowledge means that God looks down the corridor of time to find out who would believe, and therefore he elects them, we are left with a huge problem. And here the problem has to do with his son, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 20. It says he, and that he is referring back to Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now let's just think about the logic of this. God the Father didn't have any clue that his son was going to go to earth, die on the cross, to pay the penalty for man's sin, except for the fact that, oh, he looked down through the corridor of time and said, ah, that's what's going to happen, therefore, this is what I'm going to do. That is not what Scripture is saying at all. You just think about our passage. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us. Where? In him. 
So you see that there, these, these two issues are really, really uh, a struggle here as it relates to the, the, the actual definition of this word. God knows, God the Father knows specifically, the Godhead knows the plan of the Godhead and is exercising that plan of the Godhead. Otherwise, God is somehow limited in his ability. If God just was left to looking down the quarter of time to find out that his son was going to pay for mankind, we have a diminished God. It's not the God that's revealed in Scripture. Now, you wrestle with that, okay? The second reason I disagree with what is being described um, as election or God choosing us in this view is that God is not really choosing at all. <laughs> in that view, the individuals are choosing, and God is saying, well, okay, I'll go with that. He's left to their choice. It's not really God who is affecting anything. It's God that's simply putting a stamp of approval on what someone else has done. In that case, God is not choosing. Now listen, I, I understand there's complexities, as we talked about. I understand there's kind of difficulties in understanding what is going on here, but let's be careful that we're not somehow recreating what Scripture says to fit our thinking. Let's allow the Word of God to say what it says, to believe it, and then trust that God is accomplishing something that maybe we don't quite fully comprehend. Now, let's go to the, the, the final understanding and view, and that is election is taught in Scripture, and it is an election based on God's holy character. Let me ask you a question. What do you know about God's character? Is He holy? Is He good? Is He fair? All right, so He'd be just, All right? Is he all-knowing? Okay. And you see how just even bringing some of those words up, other views are like, well, that wouldn't fit, would it? If God is all-knowing, then how come he didn't know this? Okay. God's holy character, his very being, is the source of this election, the source of this choosing. And so I want you to, to even, even in, in the passages that we read, the few verses that are our text today, you'll find these words, his love, his will, and his good pleasure. It actually says his purpose, but it means his good pleasure. This is all behind his election. So here's a helpful definition from Wayne Grudem that summarizes what God's uh, election is. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on, uh, not on account of any foreseen merit in them. It's not because they did anything. It's not because they were somehow a priority in, in the community, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. All right, we sang a song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch. A wretch is someone who does not have any merit in them at all, but God, in his grace, pursued that wretch, pursued you, pursued me, okay? So God is not waiting for me to respond. He is already at work drawing me to himself. And let's just think, we'll let that kind of simmer a little bit as we continue on. I think there are two very helpful and important perspectives that I like to at least talk about in, when, when we're talking about this subject. First of all, and the two perspectives are God's perspective, I'll put it up here, and man's perspective. And I think it's really important for us to, to make the distinction between the two. Let's think about God's perspective, and I'm, just, I'm kind of pulling things now from Ephesians 1 
and then we'll eventually end up a little bit in chapter 2. So you have your Bibles ready there. But much of God's perspective is hidden from us. Do you know how God accomplishes his purposes in your life? Can you always trace what he's doing and how he's doing it? No. I would say, so, so much of what God does in our lives, much of his perspective is hidden from us, but we know that he is at work in us. We certainly know that because Scripture says that. In this passage, we see his choice. We see his love. In fact, let's just read that, those, those few verses, beginning at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So think now, as we read that passage, you saw God's choice, you saw God's love, you saw his purposes, you saw his will, you saw his grace. This is all God at work. (laughs) This is what God is doing. All right? Now, that's God's perspective. He is at work accomplishing his purposes. We don't always see it, but we know that he's a good God. We know he's a powerful God. We know that he holds all things together, and he is accomplishing his purposes. Now, there's another perspective, and that's my perspective, man's perspective. We don't see God's work taking place. What we do see or experience when we hear the gospel is our guilt or blame our sinfulness, our our alienation from God, or the fact that our family is the pagan world around us. So we hear the gospel, we're wrestling with things like our sin. We're wrestling with the guilt that we feel. We ultimately then, through the gospel, see the cross, the entry point to salvation through Jesus Christ, again from this passage, and the incredible result of, of going through the cross and being in Christ, we see that. We, we, we recognize that because we are, we are brought into the family of God. We're brought into the place where the, the riches of Christ cover us. Now jump down to verse 13. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Is there, are you doing anything as it relates to the gospel? You're hearing, and you are believing. Okay? From your perspective, you've heard the gospel, and you're coming to the place where you're saying, this is what I have to do. I have to believe what God says is true. I have to believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I have to come humbly before him and, and, and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I am doing that. And so that's where we live. We feel that. We see that. We breathe that. We experience that. There's remorse. There's struggle. There's anguish. There's joy. We're experiencing all that. So from our perspective, we heard the gospel that we were guilty, sinful, and alienated from God. We believed the gospel that through Christ we could be forgiven, holy, and reconciled to him. But now we must ask the question, how did you come to the place that you believed? Why is that important? Look at chapter 2. In verse 1, Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, if someone is dead, are they a little dead? 
This is a description to help us understand our condition and our ability. We're dead. The last time I checked, if you go up to a dead person, you kick them, they probably will not stop you. A dead person will not try and get up. Why? Because they're dead. In order for life to come, something alien has to come and to do something in them. So let's read on in this passage. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is a description of Satan, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. It's your new title, okay? Before Christ, you were a child of wrath. And some of the parents in here are saying, yeah, I've got a couple of those, right? I mean, it's true, right? Like the rest of mankind, okay? So you and I were dead. This is our nature. We were like the, the rest of mankind, children of wrath. As dead people, we were not seeking God. We cared little for the true God. Oh, and get this, we may have been spiritual, in quotes. We may have enjoyed religion, but it was a religion for selfish, self-gratifying purposes to give us satisfaction that somehow we were living on a higher plateau. But all of that falls short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as dead people, we need help. And only God can be our help. So now verse 4, a very famous passage of Scripture, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we're still dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. We didn't make us alive. By grace you have been saved. You see, it is God who is pursuing us, not we who are pursuing him. It is God who makes us alive, not we who choose to be alive. It is by his grace. So jump down to verse 8 now. For by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. And this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So your ability to believe is not your own doing. Your ability to exercise faith is not your own doing. Why? You were dead. God breathed new life into you, and now you have the ability to believe. Now you say, I see my sinfulness. I see the cross. I see the significance of what Jesus has done. And Lord, I want, I want restoration. I want reconciliation. I want the salvation that you offer because I am a child of wrath. I am dead, but now I can see the beauty and the glory of your cross. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may, what? Boast. Hey, I did it. I chose God. It's me. I'm the one who should be getting the glory here. Now, friends, let me just caution you. If you think your choice is what keeps you into heaven, we are a fickle people. But there's something about God and his choice. It is constant. His love, what? Endures forever. 
Now Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship. Created where? In Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, where? Beforehand that we should walk in them. Wait, so he prepares the good works beforehand, but he doesn't prepare our salvation beforehand. See, there's a lot of confusion going on here if you go the route of the second idea. Now, I realize, I realize the second idea is popular because we don't like the struggle questions that we looked at. We want God to be fair. We'll get there. Now, let's take our time to transition now to our particular text because this is a eulogy, this is a praise. I wanted to lay that foundation because you know what, friends? This topic is really important for our body. And we're going through the book of Ephesians, and it's there. And this is, this is all going to be part of what we're studying in Ephesians. We want to make sure we have a healthy perspective on it. So my purpose here is not to confuse, but to bring clarity and to, to spur you on to, to study more. But now let's look at our text. Let's let the text of God's Word speak to us, beginning at verse 4 again. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. I want you to notice, first of all, these are reasons now why we praise God, praising God for his election. We praise God for the grace of a father's motive. Now, I want you to think about all the words that are used in this passage that reveal to us the motive and the heart of God. What was the motive of God before the creation of the world? Verse 4, his love. Verse 6, His grace. Verse 5 says, the purpose of His will. I want to pause here and just stress here that that word purpose, the idea is His good pleasure, His good purpose, what He has desired to do in His heart. And then we find in verse 5, His will. Now, even even in our text here, Notice verse 5, it says the purpose of his will. Verse 9 tells us about, he, you know, he desires to make known to us the mystery of his will. And then in verse 11, he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. So all these are coming out of the heart of God. This is his motive. Love, grace, um, good pleasure. His will being fleshed out. So the blessing of election is that our salvation is rooted, not in us, but in the heart of God. It is rooted in His love, in His grace, in His will. It is the outflow of His very being. And it's amazing to think that His loving grace toward me was a purposeful act of his will before the creation of the world. Just contemplate that. Now, I have, we, we have an incredibly difficult time wrapping our hands around how that could take place. But if we're going to believe God's word for what it says, we need to believe what the word of God says and embrace it as a reality. Whether we actually understand how exactly the, 
the, the, the thread of God's providence gets us to the place of our salvation. We must embrace that this is what God is doing. And it's out of His love, His grace, His pleasure, His will. His motive was not to wait and see what I would do. His motive was to intervene, to call me out of darkness into light, to rescue me from the bondage of my sin and set me free, to open my eyes from the, the blindness of my unbelief. That is love. That is grace. That is the will of the Father before the world began. And he, friends, is worthy of our praise. And you and I had nothing whatsoever to do with that heart. It was his heart that was the source of all of that. Secondly, I want you to notice the grace of what I'm calling the the Father's blueprint. Now, in full accordance with love, his good pleasure, his will, the first thing we see is that he chose us. That's that word election. Again, election is the act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So there's this election. He chooses us. Secondly, I'm going to say it this way. He governs us, and the word that we connect with that is the word predestination. He governs us. Predestination is similar to the word election, but in a broader sense, it encompasses not only the choice, the election, but the ushering of that choice to its completion. It means to mark out the boundaries or to decide beforehand and refers to God's plan for the ages. And so he is predestining you. He has elected you, and he is in this process of making sure that election is actually fulfilled. And how is it fulfilled? And the, less, the third thing we see here is predestined to adoption as sons. This word adoption. To say it differently, predestination is the certainty of God's election being realized in our adoption as sons. Now, friends, that's powerful language. That's language given us so that we can be confident and secure that what God is doing, he will be faithful to complete. When we talk about he began a good work in you, and he is faithful to complete that work, we often just think of that from terms of, well, this is the moment of my salvation. But that's not where he began that good work in you. He began that good work in you before the creation of the world. From your perspective, you're seeing it at the point of your salvation. From God's perspective, he's saying, hey, listen, I chose you back here. And I'm affecting my plan all through the ages, and it's finishing up with your adoption. Now, friends, that is powerful stuff. Imagine, let's put it this way. Imagine you had $200,000, and you wanted to bless a child with a solid college education from from Berkeley. So after choosing that child to receive a degree, you personally made it a point to live near them, to protect them, to guide them, and to be sure that they attended the right school so that they could get the right education, so that they could qualify to enter into college, and they could receive, ultimately, that degree. You chose them You had the end in mind of the degree, but you were also there guiding the way so that what you started out doing was actually finished, okay? So this election, predestination, 
ending up with adoption is a really, really, imp- a really powerful reality that God is promising here, right? <clears throat> so God's promise of election and predestination to adoption of sons is a source of great encouragement to the believer rather than something that stifles them. It fuels joy that God is already at work pursuing the lost. In incredible ways, in the most unexpected places. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of going to Russia again. Um, This actually was my first time to Russia, and I went to a place called Kirovichapetsk. And uh, KC, as we we called it, is like 14, thank you, is like 14 um, hours by train east of Moscow in the middle of nowhere. It was actually a town that was not on the maps because they had a chemical plant there. And Slavic Gospel Association, which is the middleman organization that we worked through, I was a pastor going over to teach, um, had five years previous to that gotten a letter from a lady, one lady, who read her Bible and came to the place where she embraced Christ as her Lord and Savior, and there were no churches in that city at all. And somehow she, she found out about SGA, and she contacted them and said, please send us someone to teach us or to teach me about the Word of God. And a man by the name of Anatoly went. I want you to think about this. No believers except for one lady. Five years later, when I arrive, there's a church of over 500 people. That church of over 500 people is sitting and worshiping in a church that houses 500 people that the local government allowed them to build and they have the resources to build and we're now doing ministry in the community. And I was there to teach pastors and missionaries that were raised up during those five years that were going out to villages to start churches in that area. You see, we don't always know how God is working, but we trust that God elects and God predestines and he adopts. And so we go with joy. We go with encouragement that God is at work. We don't know what he's going to do. Who would have thought one lady five years later? See, that's how God works. And so so this, this, this teaching of election is not something that stifles, it's something that encourages. And friends, if you study the pioneer missionaries that went out, they were guys who believed in this truth. And they were guys who were saying, God is at work. And so I'm going to be faithful to what I've been called to, and I want to, with joy, be a part of what he's doing. And they went, and God just went, and people came to know the Lord and started to, to, to just grow and grow and grow. Just amazing. You say, well, it's because they went and they preached. Yes, it is because they went and they preached. But it's also because God had already predetermined that this was going to happen. And so we go, we do ministry. And this fleshes out in how we do ministry to all sorts of people. People that we wouldn't even think would, would even consider the word of God. Is God already at work in their lives? Friends, we need to be mindful of that. So that we praise God for that blueprint. Secondly, we, or thirdly, we praise God for the Father's sacrifice. This is really important. I don't want don't to miss it. It says we're chosen, but we're chosen in Christ. That is a description of our position. We are seated with him, Ephesians later tells us. We're adopted, how? Through Jesus Christ. That's talking about what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross as our substitute. So the, the grace here 
of the Father's sacrifice is, is, is drawing our attention. We praise God for the fact that he sent his son to be that sacrifice, to be that substitute, and to acquire that position for us in him. So this is where the cross becomes the focal point. So this, this eulogy is, friends, is, is dripping with Christ. <laughs> He's almost in every one of these 12 verses. And the expression in him or in Christ is stated over 10 times. All these things are happening in Christ. And you can almost read this passage and in Christ becomes background kind of information. It's like, oh yeah, there it is again, there it is again, there it is. But the point, it's there. This is about Christ. <laughs> and so we're praising the Father for his his willingness to sacrifice his son on our behalf. And not only to sacrifice his son, but also that in his son that we are found holy and complete. So as we think about why we should praise God, we praise God for the gospel. And it's not just the gospel that gets us in, it's the gospel that sustains, it's the gospel that gives us life and perspective for all that we do. And friends, we have much to praise God about in the gospel. The fourth area that this passage brings to our attention is this, the grace of the Father's accomplishment. Now, we need to just, just, just let's pause and let's just think through the words that are being used here. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In God's choosing of us, he seeks to accomplish, in this passage, four things. The first one I'm going to bring up is the fact that we are blameless, which means then that we were guilty. But God, through Christ and in election, removes that guilt from us. And we move from the position of being guilty to the position of being blameless. Friends, if you are a child of God, you are blameless. Not because you don't still struggle with sin, but because that sin has been paid for. And even now, as a child of God, you are as holy and as blameless as you will ever be because your position is in Christ. And when God looks at you, he looks at you through the lens of Christ, and Christ is blameless, and Christ is holy. And that would be the next one, the word holy. We have no, not something removed, but something added. We get the holiness of Christ. And this is a beautiful thing. Our sinfulness doesn't transfer to Christ. His holiness transfers to us. We are declared because of Christ, and because we're in Christ, we are declared righteous. We are holy before him. And so the pollution of our sin is exchanged for the holiness of Christ. Not, we've already looked at it, but there's the word adoption. He's predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And just think about what it means to be adopted. One of the heartbreaking things when you travel around the world is if you ever have the opportunity of going to an orphanage. And there are children there that are in horrible situations, who would love to be adopted. 
but either people don't care about them or even the government sometimes hinders people from adopting. But we have the great privilege of not being a part of a family, but then brought into the family of God. He's adopted us into the family of God. And not only just kind of like, you know, just barely get in. No, we are adopted as sons. And that is significant. That means we have a standing. That means we have a, you'll see it later, an inheritance. That is part of his accomplishment. And friends, we praise God for that reality because if you're a child of God, you're blameless, you're holy, and you are adopted. You are part of the family of God. That status, that position doesn't change. But the other accomplishment is this. It is the glory of God. It is the glory of God to the praise of his glorious grace. What he has done is declaring his glory. And God desires to declare his glory. God desires to be glorified. To the praise of his glory. Now friends, that's just a a brief run through here of why we praise God for election. Because all these things are intricate in in that choice that God made before the creation of the world. Now, Let's just, as we we bring things to a close, I want to go back to those questions, and I want to seek to briefly answer those questions, and with the time that we have, do the best I can to give some direction, okay? And some of the answers we've already touched on, and will be very clear. Question number one, it doesn't seem fair that God would choose some and not others. Now, friends, let me just ask the question, do you really want God to be fair? And you might say, yes. And I would say, if you really want God to be fair, then you will not experience the joy of heaven at all. Because fair means just. And if God gave you what you deserved, you would end up in hell. Okay? Thankfully, God doesn't remain at the place of justice, but is a God of mercy and grace. For him to choose any one of us is an act of great love and kindness for which we should all be thankful and see, what's, what's in this fairness thing is, why does God choose me and not maybe my sister or my parent or I'm worried about my children? And I just want to take you back to those two different perspectives. That child is responsible for listening to the gospel, hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, but at the same time, God is at work accomplishing his purposes. There is a fairness, there's a justice about everything that God does. And so we rest in the character of God. And we don't do ministry based on, you know, which one are the elect or not. You guys ever, uh, the Dr. Seuss, the, the one, I can't remember what it was, the, the Sneetches that had the stars in their bellies? You guys remember that one at all? And that you were in if you had a star in your belly? Now, we don't want to look at each other's bellies, trust me, okay? But we're not, we're not trying to figure out who the elect are by going around and pulling up their shirt to see if they got an E stamped on their back. We don't know. That's not our job. It's what God declares he does. Okay. Fairness would mean that we would all go to hell. Grace means that God has chosen some. And, and you say, oh, how does he choose? It seems, do we have a God who's wise? Do we have a God who is perfect in what he does? Absolutely. And so we've got to answer that question by resting on the character of God. And it's not an ogre God. How can it be an ogre God to, to draw people out of that that, that, that final solution. The reality is, friends, that no one who desires um, 
to be saved will not be saved. And all those who are not saved will ultimately go the way that they really want to go. Okay? That's just, that's just the reality of how things will be. Because if someone desires to be saved and they don't, it's really because they're desiring something on their terms, not on God's terms. Okay? So there's a lot more to say about that, but I just want to make sure that we, we're, we're, we're at least answering the question of fairness. It is, it is more than fair what God does. It is grace. I mean, if we want to sing amazing fairness, how sweet the sound... It just doesn't have the same ring, friends, because it wouldn't save a wretch like us. Secondly, it seems rather cold and mechanical and personal. Now, friends, we've just gone through a passage that talks about his love, <laughs> his, his kind intention, his good pleasure, his will, his adopting us as sons. Does that sound impersonal? Absolutely not. We are brought into his family. We're giving status. We are objects of his love through eternity. That is not impersonal. That is not mechanical. That is relational. So it's the opposite that is true. He sought me out in love to be adopted into his family. And friends, that is personal. That is relational. That is full of warmth. The third one didn't. Didn't I freely choose to follow God in salvation? My answer to that question is yes. You freely chose to to respond to God, but you didn't realize that in that freedom to choose, that that freedom to choose was granted to you by him because you were dead. So from your perspective, you're doing all these things, and you're you're saying, yes, God, I want you. But that, that ability to do that means that God had to breathe something in you. He initiated the process. He breathed life into your soul. He made you alive so that you could respond by believing. But listen, don't make your choice the, the actual mechanism for your in or out status. And I, I, I've, I've ministered in churches that, that believe you could lose your salvation. Literally, you could be saved one week and the next week you're getting saved again, and then the following week, you're getting saved again, and it's just like chaos. And people's sanctification is just going, going nuts because they don't have the security of their standing with God because they, they see it as all based on what they do and their choice. We are all going to fall flat on our face, right? Aren't we? Anyone sin? Right? Peter this morning began by talking about, you know, those little arguments we have on Sunday morning, getting to church, all that kind of stuff, right? We, we all do that. And aren't you thankful that, that those don't somehow knock you out of the family of God? Can you imagine if they did? Can you imagine the heartache and the torment that that would bring? Number four, isn't election simply man's speculation about how God saves? And this comes more out of a systematizing, you know, you've got an idea, you've got the systematic theology that teaches this, and Friends, we've just looked at a, at a text of Scripture that speaks directly to the subject of election. There's no speculation, only definitive articulation by God through Paul that this is what God does. Our job is to dig, and to ask God for help in understanding this glorious truth. Now, hear this. Our responsibility, because we're, we're, we're all at different levels in our grasping and understanding of this, friends. We are all at different places. And so our responsibility is to go before God and say, God, give me wisdom. 
Help me to understand your truth. Help me to, to, to wrap my hands as best I can around it and to grow in this beautiful reality. Number five, doesn't believing in election leave the door open to sinful living without regard for God? In other words, now that I am elect, it doesn't matter how I live. And friends, this was the argument that I faced when I went to Russia, because by and large, the brothers and sisters in Russia um, did not believe in election, struggle with it, and there's some reasons for that. There's the history of the church there, but there's also the Bible that they use there is a very weak translation. It's a double translation, which means you lose things in the translation. And so those passages that should be strong were very weak. And so they struggled, and they actually looked at the United States. And this is when Bill Clinton was president. I know I don't need to say any more, but you have to understand. They're saying, well, Bill Clinton is a Baptist. And in the United States, you have Hollywood. And they're going down on this list, and they, they think of America as, you know, you claim to be God's most favored nation, God's nation, and this is how you live. And it's because you believe in election. And, and so the idea was that, that this, you know, just kind of opens the door to live how you want. Now, friends, the reality is that some people can come to that conclusion wrongfully. I've got my ticket to heaven, and now I can do what I want. Now, if that is true, it is incredibly sad that someone would believe that. God the Father has chosen us in him to be holy and blameless, and the tone of Scripture is that because we are in him, we are to live lives that pursue Christ-likeness. Go to chapter 4, and we then look at verse 1, and this is the transition of the doctrinal stuff in the book of Ephesians to the practical stuff, and what we say, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What's the calling? Your election. So now walk in a manner worthy of the fact that you're called holy, that you're called blameless, that you're called adopted as son. Live in a manner that is in accordance with that. God wants us as his children, even though we are declared holy and blameless and adopted as sons, to then pursue living our lives that are holy and blameless and are representative of people who are his sons because we carry the name of the family. So, friends, we've got to be careful that we don't believe the lie that if I am chosen, I, I can live how I want. Number six, doesn't election produce a boastful pride? Now, friends, certainly it can if we're not careful. And, friends, again, I'm bringing up Russia because this is where all this kind of stuff happened. Um, one of the things I encountered there was that the older generation who struggled with the, this doctrinal teaching of election um, they, they did battle, so to speak, with the younger generation that was learning the original languages, that was actually studying hard, not so much the tradition and the history of the church, but the actual text of Scripture. And they were coming to conclusions, hey, this is what Scripture says. And the older generation was saying, well, no, we have trouble with that. We've always considered that to be heretical. And so they did battle. And in that culture in particular, if you know Russians, they're very, very passionate about what they do. The younger generation, taking on younger generation attitudes, got very, very arrogant in how they behaved and how they interacted with the older generation. And so those who ended up believing this were labeled as people who simply were proud. And you know what? They were. <laughs> they were proud. And there's a subtle way that that happens. Here's, this, here's how it happens. This person who's come to the place where they're, they're, they're recognizing this, this teaching and they're, they're, they're just reveling in the beauty of it is saying to themselves, 
why don't they see what scriptures clearly teach? They're saying, I can't believe that they still hold onto their weak and old-fashioned doctrines. Now, that's what maybe they're thinking in their heart. But you say that to someone else, how does that come across? Why haven't you arrived in your understanding of what God's Word says? Now, friends, there's got to be a humility in all of us because we we have been drawn by God to himself, not because of anything that we have done. We are here because of his goodness and his grace. We don't comprehend why. We don't exactly see how, but we recognize that that's what Scripture says does happen. And we're not proud about it. We rejoice in it, but we're humble with that truth. And so we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. I didn't do the finding. He's the one that did the finding. I was blind, but now I see. Now the last one, doesn't believing in election remove any need or responsibility for the things like prayer, evangelism, and good works? Now I hear this a lot, and this is a really, really good question. The answer is, if someone has a faulty view of election, it could result in them thinking this way. But we must remember that God's election does not remove our responsibility. Divine sovereignty, which would be another way of talking about this whole idea of election and predestination that we're looking at here, divine sovereignty and human responsibility work hand in hand. Okay? Not, one's not battling the other. God's election does not cause us to abandon our responsibility as if God or fate is simply carrying out his plan. No, God's election is carried out through our responsibilities. So we we do pray, we do evangelize, we do good works before people. We, We do those things that God has called us to do, believing that in doing those things that God is working his plan through us. So that when we have a friend who is an unbeliever, we go to God praying and pleading, not because we somehow can change God's view and his attitude. He's already chosen, but we pray passionately and we do what we do to live our lives before them. And God accomplishes and works his plan through the faithfulness of God's children doing what they know they're responsible to do. So we do it passionately. Hear this. There's there's a simple statement that is often made here, and I think it's helpful. God ordains the ends. That means people actually coming to faith, the the adoption of sons, the holiness, the the blamelessness. He ordains the ends, but God also ordains the means. So the ends, the holy, blameless adoption, and the means, prayer, doing good, evangelism, all those things, those all working together to accomplish God's purpose. So we don't say, ah, God's going to carry it out in his own way. I don't have to do it. No, he's called us to do it. And he wants us to do it. And he accomplishes his will through doing it. And so we rejoice in that. So uh, as we pursue our God-given responsibility with God, confidently knowing that God is at work through the working out of his love and that through our faithfulness he is accomplishing the purpose of his will, we then pray confidently, knowing that God is at work. We evangelize expectantly, knowing that God is at work, and we do good works humbly, seeking to give glory to God. Now, friends, we have much to praise God for here with his election. I know we haven't covered everything, 
but I hope this has helped you at least wrap your hands around this wonderful yet difficult and often confusing subject. It is not something we simply endure. It's something that we praise God for and we rejoice over and we rest in him because of it. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your, your strength and your goodness. Lord, I ask that, that, that your word would be clarified by the ministry of your Holy Spirit in the hearts of your people today. I ask, Lord, that there would not be a resistance, Lord, to your word and its teaching. But, Lord, if there are places where we struggle, Lord, that we would go before you and we would, we would ask for help and that we would rely on your Holy Spirit to draw us to places that would give clarity to your truth. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. You are worthy of our praise. We do not comprehend why you have chosen us. We don't comprehend how you have predestined us. We don't comprehend what it really means in this total picture of being adopted as sons and what it means to be holy and blameless. But Lord, we praise you because we are so unworthy of being the objects of your grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving us what we do not deserve. In your son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.